quick bit of housekeeping before we jump in. You might notice a little bit of echo, perhaps some background noise on this week's episode. We're just moved into a new studio space and things aren't exactly perfectly set up yet and soundproofed the way we might like them. So just stick with us. We promise it'll get better. Last week in tech. Hey everyone, and welcome to Last Week in Tech, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Corinne Iozio. I'm Stan Horacek. And I'm Rob Verger. The first thing, Stan, that we're going to talk about is a whole bunch of phones. Specifically, yeah. I want to ask you about a phone from a company that we haven't really talked about a lot, haven't heard about a lot in many years, which is Palm. Palm. They yeah. have a new phone out, but it's not exactly what you might think. Yeah. In fact, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> I've read, read all about it. I've talked to people who've used it, and it's a pretty fascinating little device. The idea... What's it called? So it's called the Palm, and it's essentially a small secondary smartphone that you put on your plan, and then you use when you don't want to carry around your bigger main smartphone. <laughs> so it's a tiny little like candy bar sort of dumb phone? I don't... No, see, you would think that that would make sense. Right? That's, a, that's sort of something that would make sense. But this is essentially a smartphone. It is has a 3.3-inch screen. It has full Android 8.1. It runs all the Android apps. It's literally, it even has two cameras. It has a front-facing 8-megapixel camera and a 12-megapixel camera on the back. So it's literally just a smaller phone? Yeah, it's a second smartphone. And, you know, all of the marketing and stuff that goes along with this... The, the pitch is that this will help you use your smartphone less. Because it's more annoying? Because it's more terrible. But if you, <laughs> if you look at the specs on the Palm, it's actually not that much different from like an old smartphone. So like it has a 3.3 inch screen, but the iPhone 4 had a 3.5 inch screen. <laughs> so like that's what smartphones were a couple of years ago. So a second phone, same functionality, just smaller, also on my data plan. So just the same as if I'm adding another line. Yep, it's a Verizon exclusive. You have to put it on Verizon. It is one of the more confusing tech products that has come out in an extremely long time. I mean, Rob, are this... we missing something? What do you think? I, yeah, I was going to ask. Like, it, no, I agree with all the, the silliness and skepticism here. I wonder if this could be the kind of thing that someone who goes for a run might want to take with them um, so that they don't, I guess, so that they shave off a couple ounces and they can bring their smaller phone with them for just the essentials. Right, but I mean, then you have to ask the question of like, why not just get a smartwatch or an Apple Watch? Right, which you can get with cellular. <laughs> right, because the Apple Watch screen is roughly what, like two two inches, a little smaller than that. Right, and you're going up to three point three inches, and like, what? Why? <laughs> it lives. This literally feels like a giant. Giant Android watch. Could you imagine if you bought a car and they're like, we'll also sell you this tiny, smaller car? <laughs> <laughs> it comes with a scooter in the trunk. <laughs> right. That comes out. And it, it's $349, so it's not even particularly cheap. <laughs> it has an older Snapdragon, like a less powerful Snapdragon processor in it. It's literally just like buying a cheaper smartphone as a companion to your primary smartphone. It's just, I mean, the marketing is so confusing because when... I th when you say something to me like companion phone, I think something similar to a smartwatch. I think of a smaller device, maybe less functional, when I don't want to have the bombardment of my smartphone with me. That is something that's appealing, and there are phone companies doing that. Yeah, but that this is not this. And, you know, it's interesting because Palm is a familiar name in the smartphone world. You know, so, like, if you think of Palm, you think back to, like, they made some really great phones. Like, the Palm Pre 
like I, I don't know how many of you remember that phone, but it was a slider phone. It was an excellent phone. Yeah, it was a slider, and then it was like this rounded corner rectangle and the, the screen slid up from the front. It was like a sandwich and they'd slide back and forth. And then there was a little keyboard and a touch screen. And this was early on. So like it really felt great, you know, and even going back beyond that, the, the Palm uh, Trios, the Trio 650, like that was a yeah. huge deal. You know, it was like a Palm Pilot that was a phone. Um, and people really love that. But, you know, that's not the kind of thing you should expect because this isn't Palm. This company has nothing to do with actual Palm now. This is a startup that bought the intellectual property for the company Palm from TCL last year. And a similar thing happened with Nokia, right? In terms of right. the little Nokia, like uh, old school phones like that, that kind of came back to life in a similar way. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, they're hoping like to, I think the, the name of this thing being Palm is just kind of a nostalgia play for people. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. Once you explain to someone who maybe doesn't know what Palm is, what the phone is, they're like, well, that's dumb. But somebody who maybe, like you said, has affection for the old Palm brand yeah, might and, be a little tempted. But it's it's a hard sell. And they, you know, there is a lot of marketing that's gone into it. So Steph Curry, like a you know, one of the top M- NBA players, has, you know, quote unquote designed some of the accessories that go with it. They have this like crazy forearm sleeve that you can put the phone in. So you can wear it essentially like a it's like a not a smartwatch, it's like a smart gauntlet <laughs> that you can wear sort of deal. This right. is one of those products that it seems like even if you were to get it for free, would you use it? And the answer probably for a lot of people is no. No. Yeah. Well, but if you want You'd it, still have to pay to use it. Yeah. If indeed. I could, if it was an extension of my phone that I didn't have to add onto my data plan, maybe. Right. Maybe. Yeah. But no, that, this is one of the most confusing gadgets of, of the year so yeah. far. But a gadget that's not confusing is the new flagship smartphone from Google, the Pixel 3, the Pixel 3 XL have been out for about a week now. Stan, we posted your full review on popsi.com, primarily looking at the camera tech. Yeah, because the camera is really the big selling point here. We're, we're at a point now, uh, you know, I've used the flagship phones now. Like I've spent a considerable amount of time now with the Pixel 3 XL, the iPhone XS uh, Max, and the Galaxy Note 9, the Samsung. And all of that, like the, the general overall trend of 2018 is like these phones are really good, but they're not crazy different than the, the flagship phones of 2017. And that's largely the case with the Pixel 3. Um, now and I really liked the Pixel 2. That was one of my favorite phones of last year. So going into it, you know, I was really concentrating on the camera because Google pitched this as the best camera ever with a smartphone attached, which is like I'm a big camera guy. So oh, they did caveat it like that. I thought they just did a hard stop at ever, which I thought was well had yeah, some bravado. They kind of did. I, there's like they said it a couple times in a couple different ways, but they clearly are very proud of this camera. And and honestly, like after using it for a while. I think it's the best smartphone camera you can buy right now. Like if that's the most important thing to you, then I think this is the one uh, to buy. And it's what's so great about it. So, you know, I've talked to a couple of people on Twitter about this and, you know, they were like, well, the image quality in some situations, like the way I judge a smartphone camera is like, can I point it at most things and take a decent picture? And that's really where Google has put all the work in. They have all this technology now where every time you push a button, it's not taking one picture, it's taking a whole bunch of pictures and it's mashing all that image data together, right? So like they've done smart things where like Google has basically accepted the fact that smartphone flashes are the worst thing on earth. Flashes in the hands of people who don't 
know how to use them properly, who aren't trained photographers, just should be banned. Yeah, and because the flashes on smartphones are basically just an LED flashlight, and it makes everything ugly and bad colors and smeary. So Google finally has come around and said, all right, well, we're still going to give you a flash, but we're also going to try and take all this extra technology and make it so you don't need to use the flash anymore. So this night shot mode that they have, it takes a bunch of like long exposures and it crams them all together. So now you don't have to use the flash at all. And generally speaking, the images look better, but we're at a point now where they're all so similar that like if you can't pick up a modern flagship smartphone and take a good picture, it's just because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> right, but you're, you're a photographer, a professional photographer and, and quite good, although maybe those of us in the room are a little bit biased. What were some pictures to you that stood out that you would look at that you took and say, this is why this is a good camera? Sure. And, you know, this is one of those things that I love. Portrait mode is a big thing, right? The idea that you can take a picture of a person and the background will be blurry, but the person will be sharp, right? That's the thing that people love. And if you are looking at Instagram at this point in 2018, you're probably seeing portrait mode almost all the time. Like my Instagram feed is jammed with it and it kind of looks like a mess. You know, like these blurry backgrounds, they get kind of smeary and ugly and I don't like them. Google has, I, in my opinion at least, done it in a way that's more subtle where they're like blurring the background but not to such a crazy extent that it looks fake anymore. And that's sort of the overall theme of the Pixel phone camera is that it's making it so that you get this effect but it's not so pronounced. It doesn't look like they're doing HDR to like give you more colors, but they're not doing it so much that everything looks like World of Warcraft. Rob, would you ever buy a phone because of the camera? You know, I think all things being equal, people tend to make decisions on their phones, not because of the camera, although that's an important consideration, but based on the operating system. So yeah, if you're an iPhone person, obviously you're thinking about which iPhone has the best camera or, you know, ditto with Android. Yeah, it's still, it's, it's one of those things where people have asked me, like, is it, should I switch from like an iPhone to this phone. And the answer generally is like, it's probably not worth it. But I mean, there are some advantages where like you get unlimited full resolution photo storage with the Pixel. So every photo and every video you take, no matter how big it is, you get to store in Google Photos for free at full resolution. And even to the iPhone users in the audience, you should download Google Photos to your iPhone also because you do get that same automatic infinite, right, Stan? It's backup. automatically infinite. They just yeah. like down res the, the resolution a little bit if you're shooting with some other camera. Yeah, um, and but, you can pay a little extra to get the full storage, which I do with Google Photos. It's such a great app. Yeah, Google Photos is a phenomenal. I recommend it to a lot of people because I've had people who I've recommended it to and then they lost their phone and then they're like, I can't believe I lost all those photos. I'm like, didn't I tell you to download Google Photos? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, then you should look in it. And they're like, oh, my God, here's all my stuff. Uh, so it really is worth doing that. Um, but yet, you know, it's not going to make a switch. Everybody should take this commercial break right now and go and download the Google Photos app. We promise you will not regret it. Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech articles every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. New episodes come out every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and almost everywhere you can listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, weirdos. On to the next thing. We're back. Next up, we're going to talk about something that you, Rob, have spent some time looking into this week. The TSA gave us a window into what 
going in and out of airports is going to look like at security checks. What are the big takeaways here? In a word, the thing to think about is biometrics, which is using things like your thumbprint or a, a image that a camera takes of you to recognize your face as your boarding pass or as a way to get through security. And so, as you said, the TSA released what they call their roadmap. And basically what they're looking to do is kind of increase the use of biometrics so that if you're boarding, let's say, an international flight, you may not actually be greeted by, by a TSA officer. Instead, you may be greeted by some sort of camera kiosk where you scan your passport, it looks at you, and then does a little facial uh, recognition matching game to make sure that you are who you say you are. So that's the long game. They want that everywhere in the future, but it's in some places now already? Yeah, exactly. Airports like Los Angeles, JFK, Atlanta, Denver, Orlando, you know, Boston all have biometric security either coming or there already to a certain degree. So it's, you know, in different phases in different places. But um, the place where you're most likely to encounter it, first of all, in the near future is international travel. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're traveling internationally, you have a passport. If you have a passport, then Customs and Border Protection probably has an image of you on their server, which means that facial recognition algorithms can match the image it takes of you at the gate or at security to something that they already have on file. Do we have a sense of how good they are at doing the matching? I imagine that they do it well enough so that they hopefully have tested to make sure that there's no false positives, that somebody doesn't get through who shouldn't be getting through. and. You know, one can't of the, put on a mask and sneak through or anything fun like that, like Demolition Man style. Well, that's like a real concern when you're talking about this stuff is can it be spoofed by something like a mask? And when Apple released Face ID, for example, they even talked about how they've made sure that it couldn't be spoofed by a mask. I have a little more faith in a private tech company like Apple and their security practices than I do in a government agency like the TSA. Um, yeah, because it's not just a simple camera a lot of times. Like you have to have things that make a 3D map or infrared to see like if this is like a warm skin face or like, you know, a cold silicon thing mask. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. things like I did some reporting a couple of years ago on retinal scanners and they the thing that happened in Demolition Man was somebody held a disembodied eyeball up to a retinal scanner to bypass security, but that actually can't happen with retinal scanners because the scanners detect the pulse. Like they can see the blood moving in the capillaries in your eye. They call it liveness detection. So I guess that is fair that there are things built into the technology that make it smart enough to not get faked out. Yeah, at least you hope so. <laughs> right. And the facial recognition could struggle, for example, if part of the face is occluded. So if somebody's wearing a medical mask, you know, someone who doesn't want to get sick or maybe they have the flu and they don't want to give the flu to other people, they might have to remove their mask when going through a facial recognition system at an airport. And, um, you know, one of the first airlines to really test this out was JetBlue and they tested it out uh, at the gate as a way of boarding at the plane. Uh, in places like Boston, traveling to international destinations like Aruba or Bermuda. So we've been seeing things like this for a while. And I think the prediction is we'll be seeing only more of it as the future comes closer. So does that just mean that people aren't even going to queue up, that we just sort of will eventually be able to walk in and not necessarily pass through a kiosk, pass through a line? We're just kind of, hey, camera, I'm here now. It me. I think it's going to be less of a walking through something continuously, like you almost saw in like Total Recall, remember, that giant x-ray machine. Um, and it's going to be more of you step up to a thing, maybe you scan your passport, you give your attention to a camera, and it either lets you through or it doesn't. So, you know, we do this now when we go through security and a TSA agent looks at our license or our passport <laughs> and right. matches it with our face. It's literally the exact same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's actually different ways they can do matching. One is a kind of one-to-one match, which is the system knows your name, and they're going to check and see, does this face that I'm seeing now before me match the name that was just scanned? The other way to do it is kind of one-to-many, which is they scan your face and they say, is this person one of the 300 people on this plane who has permission to board? And if so, let them on. And is the idea that this is going to make things safer or faster or both? TSA talks about making things more secure, and I'm not yet convinced that it will necessarily be faster. Although one thing to think about is that the TSA needs to screen over 2 million people every day, and their budget and their manpower is limited. So they can only hire a certain number of people to do these jobs. But if they can get all these more kind of self-boarding kiosk machines where, you know, the camera lets you board basically, then I think that has the potential to make things faster because they can do it in parallel. I think one of the funniest parts of all this was the fact that the TSA sort of hints at the idea that one of the benefits here is that you're going to have to interact with fewer people (laughs) along the way. (laughs) They literally said that in their roadmap document. They were like, you know, cultural shifts have made people more comfortable with biometrics, you know, using face ID or whatever. And people are more than happy to do that if it means not talking to a government official or airline employee. So have you, I could count on one hand, if at all, the number of TSA employees who I had what I would consider a positive interaction with. Most of them neutral, some of them bad. But like, I've never had like, wow, that person is awesome. They are great at their job. It's just like they... It's often miserable. I think it's, I, yeah, I would much rather step up to a machine, scan my passport or not, and have a camera look at me and give me a little check mark that says, like, you're clear to go, and then I walk on the plane. Uh, one of the bonuses that I see for this, you know, I'm, I like to think about the human impact of stuff like this because we kind of have to because I'm not really qualified to do any other job besides this nonsense <laughs> that we're doing right now. So I think about, like, oh, is this going to take away the jobs of people? And... I mean, maybe, but on the flip side also, I have seen people who are traveling treat TSA agents in the worst possible way because they are stressed out from traveling and they take it out on the people who are oftentimes just trying to do their jobs. And that's, that's that's completely fair, but... Yeah, and you know, I think maybe there's some benefit there. Like that whole interaction between for both parties seems really terrible so maybe that you know it's interesting to see the tsa actually explicitly say hey this is a benefit that you're going to have to interact with fewer people right and but it's true and to be not so cynical for a second you could ask like what is a person you know what is the best way a person could use his or her time if they're a tsa agent one way could be checking licenses another could be kind of in a back room monitoring people going through these automated systems and that might let them actually have a bigger picture or focus on the one or two passengers out of millions who could possibly be a threat when a flag arises or something like that rather than just being overwhelmed by volume and that's that's the larger scale talk when we talk about ai taking over jobs you know if we see if you see people say like well, you know what? If people at McDonald's, you know, they want more money, we'll just replace you with kiosks. You know, that's the like cynical way of looking at that. Yeah. I just used a kiosk at the McDonald's for the very first time I treated myself. I'm literally never in McDonald's. And it was great. And they even did like a little table service. I got a number and they came. Sure. Oh. And that's the that's the sales pitch is that if this if this thing is doing this automated process, then we can take those employees and we can put them in the back and they can take more time squirting the stuff onto your hamburger or like walking it out to you or doing quality control um, or, or stuff like that. Like the that's the sales pitch of AI. You know, the worry is that we'll be like, oh, well, if we can just make everything this easy, <laughs> you know, like we have to walk this fine line because if we can take away that really baseline boring 
like tedious stuff that people don't need to be doing and give them a chance to do something that's more advanced and actually more servicey, then I think that's great. But like, you know, this is the worry that like all of a sudden the airport has no more people in it. <laughs> you know, like that's the ultimate bad news. Yeah, I mean, you're total. I think you're totally right with the AI. Like, it's everyone. I think who's kind of positive about it thinks it's great to augment people. So a radiologist uses it, uses it, and they come in, and hopefully, an AI algorithm has already sorted through all the X-rays they have to look at for the day and said, "Hey, these are the five that you might want to focus on the most because we've detected what might be a tumor, or these are the five kind of most hard to figure out what's going on. So focus on these difficult cases first. These other hundred, we're pretty happy. You know, we're pretty sure that there's nothing. And you could look at the TSA model as very similar. Right, the AI handles the low-hanging fruit, the things that maybe are more binary decisions and leaves the the thinking to the peoples. Right, but at the same time, if you want to extrapolate this AI tech to the airport, like you walk in the front door of the airport, step on a conveyor belt, and then half a mile of conveyor belt later, you're on the plane. I think you just described Chicago. Is that an idea? No, I'm just saying. Like, I think, I mean, I felt like I've been on a half a mile of conveyor belt. In right, right. but sure. I mean, maybe you just don't interact. Like, the front door to the plane, it's just, you know, one straight shot. Your self-driving shot. Uber drops you off. Right, right, and you put your suitcase down on the little robot that carries your suitcase, and it reads the thing, and then as you're on the conveyor belt, the cameras read your face, so you know where you're going, and it routes you to the right plane, and then the plane flies itself wherever it's going. Which it kind of already does to a large degree. Right, and then like the big vending machine robot walks down the hall of the of the plane and serves you your drink you know like there's it's you know it really seems like there's potential to just take people out of all of this that is definitely an extreme scenario and it's obviously i think pretty unlikely that maybe the tsa people will now have slightly different jobs but there may be not fewer tsa people or more tsa people but augmented in this way but who knows yeah because imagine if you have the job of like checking people's faces you're like right now you're like well looking at this roadmap you know this seems bad for me (laughs) (laughs) totally i mean none of us have been through any of these biometric screens right yet at any of the international hubs no no well i'm super curious uh to you dear listeners if any of you have experienced one of these at the atlanta airport i think is the big hub that has it jfk has this to a certain degree also orlando if you have a story we'd really really love to hear it tweet us at last week in tech we're gonna head out to commercial but before we do we're gonna say goodbye to rob hey take it easy and uh we'll be right back getting on the conveyor belt everybody there he goes i want some mcdonald's fries now Hey pals, looking for super cool popular science merch? We've got you covered at popsci.threadless.com. Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, and mugs with iconic vintage covers and illustrations ripped from the magazine. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite shows like Last Week in Tech and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That's popsci.threadless.com. P-O-P-S-C-I threadless.com. And the next topic is... We're back. Rob has stepped away and Eleanor Cummins has joined us at the table. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, thanks for having me. Later this month will be the release of Red Dead Redemption 2, which is one of the most anticipated video games of the year. Eleanor, you're here not necessarily to talk to us about the video game, but what it is that it took to make the game happen. Why is that worth talking about? Right. So the uh, creators of this game have been uh, sort of promoting in advance of the game itself that they've been putting in allegedly 100 hour weeks um, in order to get this finished. What? 
Yeah, which is uh, more than twice uh, what most people are supposed to be working in a week. Yeah, the original quote came from a Vulture article where it was the writing team who said they needed these like 100 hour weeks where they just push for, you know, a month to just get everything done. And they said that's part of their creative process and that they don't expect everyone to do that. Right. And they got some blowback for saying that. Yeah. And because there hasn't, Rockstar has, and pretty much all the big AAA game companies have gotten some blowback for just demanding like tons of tons of work out of these developers, especially towards the end where they're ready to release the game. But at a certain point, right, doesn't it the work just stop being good? Yeah, absolutely. There is a ton of research um, that shows that there are just devastating effects from overworking um, at this level. I mean, I think that you've seen that, you know, anecdotally when like Elon Musk cried to the New York Times because he said he hadn't slept in a few weeks. But also it shows itself, you know, in statistics and and in research um, that your productivity suffers. You start spacing out. Right. It's not like you can actually be working that much um, before your brain just sort of gives up. Um, And then you also have like a lot of like mental and physical like health decline as well from an individual perspective. So can you work yourself to death? Is that a thing or is that just a thing people say, but you're dying from something else? Defining uh, it as working yourself to death makes it a little bit hard from like a scientific perspective um, to analyze it. So researchers have found a bunch of different ways to sort of break it down. And they have found that there are definitely ways that the workplace can kill you. Um, So, you know, historically, like a lot of people were really endangered by like manual labor. And that's something that, you know, can still kill you today, but has really declined. What we're finding is that stress, physical inactivity, um, and then also just sort of loss of sleep um, in a situation like with this video game that might, you know, might cause, uh, that that is what will get you today. Yeah, because there's definitely times when like, I will get up from my desk after a really long time of working on something and feel pathetically sore and physically bad. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's surprisingly uh, common. Um, I think that, you know, there's this uh, situation in Japan, right, where they actually have a word for this. And so it's become very um, popular to talk about, like, in American media, but they call it Kuroshi. Um, and it's something where, you know, as far back as the 1980s, they've been having people uh, who die due to overwork. Um, and it's something that is not uh, it's obviously a pretty big problem, um, but they're talking about it. I think in the U.S. it's something that's much more difficult for us to even want to sort of address because it really gets to the heart of like our insane work ethic. Like American yeah, work-life balance is shot complete nonsense at this point yeah i like there's a a horrifying statistic you know that like um like most people are not taking their paid time off um like we just sort of leave that on the table and we just like work um until we're really drained um so yeah so sleeplessness um you know sleep loss is like a huge uh component of this, especially in Japan. Um, There are these horrifying cases that come out every once in a while where someone has worked or sometimes played video games um, so long that they didn't attend to any of their bodily needs um, and then died. Yeah, that's one of the interesting parts about this story is that it happens on the before the game comes out with the developers and then it can happen again with the players afterwards. Right. And we've seen this though, like there are documented cases, right, Stan, of people just sitting there and playing a video game for hours, sometimes days on end, and just stopping living. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and there's, with, with the idea of Twitch, the advent of Twitch, which is like a streaming platform for gamers, you know, one of the semi-popular things to do is to raise donations and say, you know, if people donate enough, if enough people sign up for my Patreon, then I'm going to do a marathon 
and I'm going to stream for 24 hours or I'll just keep going as long as I keep getting enough donations. And like the pressure is really high. Like that's work. At the same time that uh, it's obviously really devastating, I think that it's also become like a real part of the sort of tech culture, right? Like we have, um, you know, this encouragement to do sort of a gig economy lifestyle where all of your free moments you're trying to capitalize on. There were literally, you know, Gia Tolentino wrote about this for The New Yorker, like those Fiverr ads in the subway um, that were like celebrating, you know, the 5 a.m. workers. And we're just like basically a billboard for working yourself to death. And for people who don't know, Fiverr is basically, it's kind of like a graphic design clearinghouse, you know, design my logo, I'll pay you $24 or some crazy nonsense like that. It's similar in that way to things like TaskRabbit, where you hire someone to come and hang your shelf. Yeah. Right. And it's so prevalent in the tech world. Like, if you don't follow Gary Vaynerchuk, who was a noted internet celebrity and the, the head of VaynerMedia, and he's a guy where if you follow him, his, his thing is that you hustle all the time. And if you're not successful in whatever thing it is you want to do, it's because you watch Netflix for an hour instead of instead of hustling all the time. And, you know, it's you look at the comments under posts like that. You know, one of his most popular posts is something called like how to make money for free. And it's literally going on Craigslist, finding free stuff, bringing it home and then selling it on the Internet. Like that's not free. That's just doing a job that may or may not get you some money, which I think like sums up this attitude where your time is often worthless <laughs> to most people in the tech world, because why not? It's real easy. The Internet makes it so easy to go get this free stuff. Why not, aren't you just going to get it? And you're like, oh, right, because it actually takes time and work to do. And <laughs> we forget that. Right. And I think that we see this as a larger cultural problem outside of the gig economy, even in the huge tech companies, which, to my mind, from the outside, seem to function a lot like casinos. Am I the only one who feels <laughs> this way? No, that seems right. Uh, for anyone who's not aware, Google and Facebook and a lot of the huger tech companies sort of create these offices that have every life amenity that people could possibly want. They have child the, care. They have child care. They have four-star chefs. I they think have Google gyms. has laundry on site. Probably. They have a Froyo machine, which, you know, <laughs> yes, please. But, you know, it kind of draws you in with this promise of look at how wonderful your lifestyle will be. But it's actually just look at how little you're going to have to leave this compound. Absolutely. Yeah, and then they've even started expanding on that, right, where now you have shuttles with Wi-Fi so you can be working on the way to work um, should you leave, which you don't need to anymore. Um, it, yeah, it, it's all encompassing. I think an important point, too, is that even if you are sleeping enough, um, there are other ways that the workplace can be uh, surprisingly bad for your health. Um, you know, we're learning more and more about the way that, like, blue light affects our eyes. Um, you know, we know how bad inactivity is. Like you were saying, Stan, like, you can sit for, like, five five hours and not even realize it when you have a lot on your plate. Um, and similarly, there's been a lot of research that suggests that, uh, you know, even just a small increase over the average um, amount of hours you're working in a day. So someone who's working 10 hours a day has um, a, a much greater likelihood of having cardiovascular health issues um, and dying sooner than someone who's working like seven hours a day. Is that what is the ideal seven hours a day? Um, I don't think that there is really a clear ideal. This is the thing that it comes back to, too, right, is that like, you know, work can be very satisfying. I think that it gives a lot of people life meaning and that can't be underestimated it's just the system in which we're doing work where we're all doing more we constantly feel like we need to be pushing ourselves and we feel like we shouldn't be prioritizing our health um 
And that's a weird tech. Like we're in this era where we've talked a lot about this, about this digital well-being thing that a lot of the companies are doing where it's like, get off your phone and, you know, stop looking at your screens so much. But like that's a complicated issue because there are times when you can go and do like if your job demands that you work a lot or be reachable a lot, sometimes looking at your phone and just checking your email a bunch of times lets you go and do stuff like with your kids or with your family that you might not be able to otherwise do. And like you get judged when you're at the playground and you look at your phone a bunch. Where I'm like, Why hey. aren't you just being here with your children? Yeah, I'm like, well, I could also just be sitting at my desk and they could be staring at TV. So like it's your brain does a lot of tricks on you, like especially when it comes to, to text specific stuff to try and figure out if you're doing the right thing or not. Oh, you're okay. universally not, though. <laughs> so last question, though. I want to dial all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. Is there anything that anyone at this table could imagine doing for 100 hours a week other than sleep? I was going to say sleeping I could totally and eating in like a 100-hour cycle. Yeah. No, my, my work goes to garbage. Uh, you know, I'll write and edit photos for like a couple hours at a time, but once I get through like three restarts of Netflix, you know how Netflix is like, are you watching? Are you still, still? watching? Yes. Right, it's autoplayed the whole way through. After the third one, everything I do is trash, and I might as well just not do it. Well, that's a good barometer. Now you know. <laughs> yeah, I think how that's, many Netflixes? Yeah, that's our that's our like thing. That's how we gauge how much effective work we can do is how many episodes of a TV show can you watch? Yeah. I could probably watch a hundred hours of Netflix in a week though if I had nothing else to do. <laughs> I'm sure I could manage that. That both sounds great and really terrible. I feel yeah. bad saying this, but I think I could definitely do my job for 100 hours a week. We really wish that you wouldn't. <laughs> Thank you. And with that. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we're going to say goodbye for this week. Stop doing our jobs. But just for a little while, because we're going to be back with another podcast for you soon. So we'll talk to you then. Last Week in Tech is a popular science podcast. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening to us right now. And if you like the show, please go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our merch, including Last Week in Tech t-shirts and mugs, at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by Stan, Rob, and me, Corinne Iozio, as well as our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have any questions, tips, or suggestions, tweet us at Last Week in Tech. Alexa, I got to go to the airport. Order me a better face.